If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Let my beautiful, lovely wife um, give you one. And then open it up, please, to John chapter 10. As we continue verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Word of God, we pick it up in verse uh, 22 today. So John chapter 10, verse 22. It's so sweet, these, I mean, these days where, you know, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I'm from Los Angeles where rain does this to people. I'm like, it's just water. And... Uh, and then here, though, once it freezes, because we have rain all the time, so we know what to do with rain, I suppose. We pick up our bellies and we hit people, in, uh, Daniel and my height, in the face with it. We're not bitter. And then, uh, yeah, but once it freezes, man, it just, people just go mental. I don't know what in the world it is. So, and then you watch people, did you, did you see anyone doing this today? I'm like, that poor guy is not getting to, to work anytime soon. Anyways, all right. Well, lo and behold, we are actually just about at the same period of time in, in the year uh, in verse 22 where we pick it up. Read, read along with me if you would now. Uh, <clears throat> now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem and it was winter. Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch and then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? I'm sure they said it just like that. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you're not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shown you for, uh, from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him and said, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? He's, called, he's quoting Psalm 82.6. We'll talk about that, because obviously we're going to need to develop that text. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but the, all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. As we go to the Lord in prayer, I do want to uh, bring up a sort of special prayer request, uh, because uh, there's, uh, some of you are aware of the fires that are taking place right now in um, in California. And I just kind of wanted to give you an idea, a rough idea of the size of the fires uh, that we've had this year in California, just to give you an idea. It is the size of London plus Paris plus Rome plus New York plus Los Angeles. And there's still a little space over. That's how much has burned 
in California over the last year. I think that puts things into perspective. So as we go to the Lord in prayer, I just think it would be really, it's over a million three hundred thousand acres at this point. And it's traveling, uh, I think Suzanne was saying something like it would burn Central Park in New York in 14 seconds or something like that. 14 minutes, 14 minutes, sorry, 14 minutes. Yeah, well, there you go. So that's why I need numbers in front of me because, yeah. All right, well, pray with me, would you please? Lord, it's such a crazy world that we live in with uh, riots taking place uh, in Israel with the fires that are burning rampantly and ferociously in California with floods that are taking place in places and even the storms that are here this whole thing is a storm that is really wreaking havoc on the coast and uh, dumping an awful lot of snow up in the north. And Lord, we, I'm just so thankful for Daniel's prayer that we can often really take for granted how amazing it is to sit in a warm room like this and open up your scripture and not think someone's going to burst through the door with a gun out uh, and arrest us for our claim to you. And yet, Lord, we recognize there's a danger in that too. Because in such circumstances, we actually do have to make a decision what kind of Christian we really want to be. Here, it's a lot easier. And it costs us nothing but uh, a trip in an underground train or whatever. Maybe the discomfort for the moment of sitting next to a stranger or waiting for a bus. But Lord, this is nothing compared to people who are freezing in some places just to be able to look at a page of, of Scripture. And, and Lord, we are asking for you to meet us here, for your word to come alive and grab a hold of us by the throats in such a way that we'll never be the same. So Lord, I know some of this is technical, but there are some of the most profound and deep and rich promises in all of Scripture, in this text. And I don't want to just jog past them as if it were just sort of a flower to look by. But rather, Lord, I want to, I want to get lost in you. I want to be consumed, even as we sang. Lord, that you would manifest in such a way that every one of us would find ourselves at your feet where we belong. And Lord, on this quiet day here, or people kind of looked outside and went, snow, therefore I can't leave my house, or whatever it is, Lord. I just want to thank you for those who have braved it today. And I pray that everyone would walk out of here being so thankful they came. So bless this time now, I pray. Immerse me in your Holy Spirit. Come upon me in such a way that you start a revolution in our own hearts today that starts a revolution in this precious city. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Don't just assume because somebody speaks with a mic on them that they know what they're talking about. We should know better by now. Or, or without a mic on them for that matter. From chapter 7 to 1021, we were at a single event called Sukkot. Sukkot is the third of three required feasts among the Jewish people. Uh, to this day, by the way, we call it the Feast of Tabernacles. 
during that particular feast. It's the longest of all of the feasts because it's actually eight days long uh, of the ones that are actually, let's say, required biblically. Uh, there's the one in the beginning, Pesach, we know as Passover, that's the seventh day. And then there is that of Pentecost, uh, which takes place 50 days later. Uh, and that, of course, is Shavuot, is the term. And that is, takes place 50 days after that Sabbath of Passover. That's why it's called the 50. Penta is 50 there. And then, of course, those, those first two, in, in essence, they dog ear, or if you will, bookend the, um, they, they book in the harvest. Uh, the, the beginning, the first fruits, and the first great harvest are those of Passover and of Pentecost. And then the last great harvest is the one that we celebrate in, from chapter 7 to 1021. It's in the middle of that particular harvest. And it's right before a time they actually call tribulation. Because for them, because it's kind of like California, it's on the same trajectory, uh, same latitude, that, uh, you know, just the, the rainy season hits. And once the rainy season hits, you know, we don't know what to do with all that rain. So with that, in the middle of that, that a woman, I remind you, was caught in adultery and thrown at Jesus' feet at the temple. That's actually in chapter 7, uh, where Jesus, uh, of course, as you're aware of, and it's kind of only pertinent in this sense here, that they came and they brought rocks to stone her because the woman's caught in adultery. Of course, the Levitical law is if a woman's caught in adultery, she and the person that, that was with her both were to be stoned. Strangely enough, I, you can't commit adultery by yourself uh, in this sense. And, uh, and obviously it appears as a setup. And Jesus, of course, says, uh, well, he who has no sin cast the first stone. They drop the stones and leave. And Jesus then will proclaim, I am the light of the world. And it's interesting because the original context, he'll say it twice, but the original context for that is that he's actually brought light through the law to show that every human being needs mercy. Nobody's made righteous by the law. What it shows us is that everyone needs a savior. The law demands it. And you go, well, what about people who don't have the law? Well, Romans makes that clear. We all actually have one law or another. We either have the law of God if you're raised in a, in a religious home, there's some form of standard granted to you, uh, or there's the law of your conscience. And, and if we're all going to be honest, We've all transgressed our conscience in one manner or another. We knew something was wrong, and we just chose to do it anyways. Well, they dropped those stones because it became evident to everyone, the oldest first, to the youngest of those that were seeking to have justice. Well, it was evident it was that everyone needed mercy. And it was important to recognize they put Jesus in an awkward space, actually thinking they had checkmate. What the idea was is that they knew Jesus was tender to the sinner, but they also knew that Jesus was unyielding, or I should say, was unyielding to anything that would break the law. And this was one of those places where they felt like, well, he's going to have to pick one or the other. He's either going to have to pick the law, which is going to be harsh, and we stone the girl, and then everyone who likes his tenderness will leave, or he's going to actually side with the woman, and then he'll break the law, and we'll be able to kill him as a breaker of the Torah. So we get the idea that he's caught in it, and I, I, I recognize this. I want to be more like Jesus. I recognize that there's the standard where we worship him in spirit and in truth. We know both things are to stand there. We know that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And, and I wonder when people look at me if they see that. Do they see somebody that was, this guy, when it comes to the word of God, he is not going to bend. It doesn't matter what the culture says or if the world takes a vote and decides somewhere in all of that, you know, we've decided that this isn't a sin anymore. Well, let all men be a liar, but God be true. That's what scripture says. And, and that I want to be unbending to the world or anything else, any influence that's going to tell me that the word of God isn't the word of God. But then on the other side of it, I also want to be tender to the person who's a sinner, recognizing I myself am one. Because if I don't recognize that, I'm in trouble and I'll become as heartless as a person who uses the laws and acts. Well, 
From that, Jesus ultimately will then demonstrate, as he does, seven distinct I am statements in John, each one backed up by a miracle. Then he sees a man born blind there at the sheep gate and gives him sight. And again, then he'll say a second time, I am the light of the world. Now, profoundly as all of that is, this man was at a sheep gate waiting, if you will, by the sheep gate waiting to die. And as he's there, he's born blind. And of course, that creates quite a stir because no one's ever seen a man born blind receive sight. They've seen people who have received some kind of impairment. Uh, traditionally, that, that might be glaucoma, or there is a particular disease, a virus, that, a bacteria that makes its way into the eyes in the Middle East to this day, by the way, but they do have a cure for it. As a matter of fact, Laodicea was actually big on producing this, and Jesus uses that in his, uh, in his exhortation to, to Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 about Isaac. Although that said... Uh, Jesus now is, is using that metaphor and he starts to speak about sheep. And he starts to speak about the fact that sheep are helpless, though they're, uh, they're constantly driven by an, an addiction, if you will, to put themselves in peril. And, but when you put them around each other, they all think they're all that until they're in any other place and then they're completely as helpless as you would expect them to be. And Jesus says there's only one good shepherd and he pulls from Ezekiel 50, or 34, which is where God himself says he would be the good shepherd, and he claims to be God there. He says, I am the good shepherd. And he says, there are sheep that are his, but not all sheep are his, but all men are sheep. And that's a scary thought, but it's a true thought. That though all men are sheep, not all men are his sheep. Now what we're going to find is, is that's going to be a matter of choice laid out before you for you as well. But then Jesus then takes from that, and now we move two months forward, starting in verse 22. In verse 22, notice that we get actually a handful of facts right from the get-go. It tells us it's the Feast of Dedication now. So we've gone from Sukkot, which is traditionally roughly October, to the time of December, which is the Feast of Dedication. As a matter of fact, we'll talk a little bit more about that. The Feast of Dedication is still celebrated to this day. As a matter of fact, it begins in two days, on, on Tuesday, to give you an idea. So let me kind of back up a little bit for a moment. And let me just kind of give you a little bit of a background to kind of help you get a little bit of what the idea here is in regards to this particular celebration. Now, though there were these feasts, these required feasts, this actually is not a required feast because the events that transpire take place in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, ending with Malachi, ends in essence roughly in the 400s B.C. And then we have that time in between that and John the Baptist, if you will. So really, we have roughly about a 400-year period of time of silence. But people are looking for the Messiah, and they are excited about him. Now, uh, through that time, Israel is actually pretty roughed out. And the reason is, it's the land bridge in between the north and the south after the man named Alexander the Great. Some of you are familiar with him. Alexander the Great, kind of a conqueror, got bored because, and some would say he died from just, there was no one left to conquer. He was like 33, I think, when it happened. And when he died, there was nobody as, as brilliant in his strategies, and just basically, there was nobody who had all that in one person. So they had to divide up his kingdom, much like Herod the Great would with his. And ultimately, there are two particular characters, two of his primary commanders. One of his name, one was name was, was Seleucid, and one's name was Ptolemy. Now that, and forgive me for giving you the background, but it really kind of helps us get into this. Now ultimately, what happens is one of them gets the area of Syria, and one of them gets the area of Egypt. Does anyone know what's between Syria and Egypt? Israel, yeah. Well, and that basically was the case. And basically, they kind of, in essence, 
We're fairly decent. We're good boys, roughly until about 177, 167 B.C. They are really, actually, I, I should go back to roughly about 200, 201 B.C. Because in 200, 201 B.C., a man named Antiochus III decides he wants more. And so he goes to battle. And ultimately, you can guess where the battle takes place. Because the battle is going to take place in Israel. Because after all, why should I just go all the way? I'll meet you in the middle and then I'll beat you up. Well, that was kind of the idea. And when he does, he actually tries to recruit Israel as part of his militia. And the way that he does it is by saying that he would give them complete, free, and open opportunity to practice the religion the way they wanted to. That was kind of the idea. Uh, but the problem was, it was that he will, he just doesn't live forever. And this guy ultimately would, ha would have a son, and his son's name is Antiochus IV, who calls himself Epiphanes, which literally means incarnate. And talk about a guy that swore he was all that. He literally called himself God incarnate. Now, with that in mind, they changed his name. The Israelites would actually change his name to Epimenides. Epimenides means the crazy person. So he'd be like, you know, so that was kind of their play on words. He's like, I'm all that. And they're like, you're all that and a bag of cats was kind of the idea. Well, his son, uh, this Antiochus Epiphanes, well, he, obviously he was, he was a nut. And he decided he was going to take on Judea and claim it for himself. Now, the way that he did it was, is that ultimately, he, he, well, he made a few changes, as you would expect. Those changes, for instance, is that he outlawed circumcision. He outlawed the reading of the Torah. In, in essence, he kind of outlawed Judaism. But when he did, what happened was, is he kind of went, you are not allowed to read. And he just kind of saw people being married to those first five books. We call it the Pentateuch. And, and so he says, you couldn't read that. And so though there was a program to read the whole Torah every year, now they couldn't do that. So what they did is they picked up the rest of the books. We would know them primarily as the, as the prophets, uh, although it's really the, uh, the Navim and the Katavim. Well, ultimately, they replaced that. So they replaced the Torah with something they called the Haftorah, which in essence was the rest of the books. Now, ultimately, we know that, that once this gets reinstated, they actually just bring back the Torah, but they don't remove the other reading, and we would call it the reading of the law and the prophets. That's how that comes about, was from ultimately Antiochus, because they were not allowed to read the law, so they read the prophets, and then once they were able to, they brought it back in. Now, the idea was quite simple. So we outlawed this. He actually shut down the sacrifice, uh, the daily sacrifice for three and a half years. I do find that interesting, especially in the light of the book of Revelation. Uh, anyways, uh, with that in mind, and of course, he outlawed all this. And so what he was going to do is, is that he wanted to desecrate the temple because he claimed his superiority as he being the god. Although, strangely enough, he still gave credit to Zeus, uh, the Greek god. And so... Ultimately, he went into the temple, he slaughtered a pig on the altar, and that wasn't good enough, so he took the blood and he just started spraying it everywhere he possibly could. And then he just killed 40,000 Jews because he could. And he deported 40,000 Jews because he could. That was kind of the idea. Now, ultimately, the temple is desecrated, and he orders a, a bust of Zeus, as if anyone could recognize what this guy would look like, you know, unless you, know, you watch, I don't know, Netflix. But... But ultimately, he orders this bus to be carried about, and wherever he carries this bus about, on its way to the temple, people were to bow to it. Now, to be honest, he found little resistance until he got to Jerusalem. Once he got to Jerusalem, well, there was a bit of a problem with one man, just one. And his name was Matthias, or Matisyahu, the fun name. Matisyahu 
Maccabeus. Maccabeus, by the way, means the hammer. You gotta love a name like that. If you're gonna get trouble, expect it from a guy named the hammer. I always, I picture him kind of like a WWE guy, you know? The hammer! And he's an old guy. He's an old priest. And they get to the outskirts of Jerusalem. They're, they're in Jerusalem, but what we would see today would be the outskirts of the temple. Strangely enough, the area we would call Solomon's Colonnade. It's the area where he's bringing this thing up, and there are these priests. And ultimately, what Maccabeus, this Matthew, said was, if anyone borrows, I'll kill you, was the idea. So you were kind of stuck. You were going to die one way or the other. Either this old priest was going to kill you, or you, know, you were going to get killed by the Grecian army. What do you choose? Well, I think what happened is, is that they gathered, and what happened is they had caught wind of this, and so they surround Maccabeus, Matthew. They surround him, and, and with it, they surround him with these other priests. And as they surround him with these other priests, here he is with a javelin in his hand, and they open and they unveil the bust of Zeus, and the priest next to him starts to bow, and I kid you not, he just, bam! He just runs that thing straight through him, and everyone else goes, and they all stand up like you've never seen before. That was it. It took one old guy and a javelin. And that was the beginning of a revolution, a peasant revolution, because one priest stood against the whole false priesthood and all that went with it. Well, ultimately, he doesn't live very long, and he dies. And he hands it to his son, whose name is Judah or Judas. By the way, it's actually a similar name. We get the term Jew from Judah today. Anyways. Not from this guy, but from all of the Judah, area of Judah. Now, that guy, basically then, 166 B.C., he goes and he takes on, he gathers up his troops now. Now it's a peasant revolution. It's kind of like Les Mis, but because it's Hebrew. And, uh, and, you know, and they kind of go and they attack, but I think, don't they all die in it? That's a spoiler alert. Anyways, they don't hear. And so what happens is they get the temple back and they cleanse the temple. And as they cleanse the temple, apparently on the same day that it was desecrated the year before, Obviously, uh, this is a very big deal. But it goes beyond that. Because they have to, they're going to rededicate the temple. The term for dedicate, and try this word in Hebrew, is the word chanach. Try that. Chanach. Now, yeah, see, now if you actually spit on the person in front of you, you've probably done it right. So, I want to see that. Now, chanach. That wasn't bad. Now, chanach, the word for dedicate or to separate or to reclaim is the idea. And, of course, according to tradition, they found there's only one particular oil that could light the menorah, the, the lampstand. And it has to be pressed, and it has to be first cold pressed. It can't touch anything else, and it takes eight days to do. Well, they only found one vial of it. Now, the, what that meant is, is that that was only supposed to last the day, and then that light would not be burning until they could actually get, the, for another week, until they can get that oil going, uh, until they could actually get it properly pressed. Well, that's supposed to be the miracle. So traditionally, that's the miracle of the light. And the idea was, is that that one vial kept the lampstand burning for eight days until they could actually get more of that oil, was the idea. So they also call it the Festival of Lights. Now, to this day, they actually like to celebrate Hanach. Now, today, Hanach is Hanachah, or we would say Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the celebration of the Feast of Dedication, just with the history I've just walked you through. In other words, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah because he was doing it here for what it's worth. Now, don't miss the concept. There on the outskirts 
of the temple courtyard, which now, by the way, has been aggrandized and now made part of the courtyard, thanks to Herod. Uh, That particular area was where one priest stood up and would not bow to the false priesthood and the regime that surrounded it, but instead stood against it. And as a result of that, a whole revolution took place. Are you with me on that? But there was one other thing that was key to note in that. And that was, is that the people were hungry for a Messiah, you might imagine. And with the Greeks now being defeated by an, 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 an army that was just nothing, insignificant in the sight. They weren't even soldiers. They were priests. They were going, maybe this could be the Messiah. But now, if you're a biblical student, why couldn't Matisiahu or his son Judah, why couldn't they be the Messiah? Oh man, that was good. Because they were from the tribe of Levi. Because priests are from the tribe of Levi or Levi. You've got to have Levi genes to be a priest. That's the whole deal. However, the Messiah must come from Judah. And the way they were trying to play it off is, but his name is Judah. Isn't that close enough? As if the Bible ever needed help. You see people do that to this day. Well, you know, I mean, a hundred years ago, I know how we could bring this all to pass. We're Israel. God's like, you're not Israel. Guess who's Israel? Israel is Israel. Figure that one out. That's pretty simple. You know, and the whole reason I say that is, is that God doesn't need our help. But as a result of that, the people were starting to try to lift up Judah and say, hey, maybe you are the Messiah. And his result is, his response is, I am not the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. But rather, what I am is just a son and a servant of the true God. And he quotes from this psalm as a result of that saying, look, at God makes us representatives of him, and as a representative of him, we cannot bow to their idols. That's the whole point of all of this. As a result, to this day, it's an eight-day celebration because of the eight days that the lamp would burn. And what they do is they cook things in oil. You can get lots of jam donuts, by the way, when you're in Israel. We've been uh, on Hanukkah. We've been in Israel on a few of those occasions. And I have a weakness for jam donuts, so it's not a good place for me. And then they cook latkes, right, if you're Ashkenazi, which is like potato pancakes. And, because it's an oil. You cook it in oil is the idea. Well, okay, you got all that. But there is one other thing I wanted to note in this as a side note, and we'll get into our text because the text really picks up except for these points we need to develop. The reason why Antiochus Epiphanes actually invaded Israel in the first place was that there were a group of people that were kicked out of Jerusalem. And they were considered priests, but they weren't priests. Matter of fact, they actually weren't even Jewish from what I can tell. They were the sons of a man named Tobiah. Tobiah, by the way, you would get in the book of Nehemiah or in Ezra. Some of you are familiar. They're an enemy of the living God. Nehemiah 2, 6, and 7. The guy actually had his own place at a set up. He had his own like, little apartment there at the temple. And this Tobiah, by the way, has family. And this family were the chief Hellenizers of the Jewish people. In other words, they were the ones trying to make them more Greek. And when they got kicked out, well, you know, you know, if you've heard, has no wrath like a Tobiah scorned. Well, that's the idea. So he went and he inv- encouraged this invasion to try to get some form of vengeance. Well, it didn't work out well for either of them, as you might imagine. Now, all of that said, we're 198 years later, 197 Hanukkahs later from the beginning of this. And with that in mind, Jesus is now walking in the temple. This father had stood against a corrupt priesthood, 198 years ago. 
the son conquered in total victory to regain and rededicate the temple 197 years ago. And it became Chanukh, the dedication Chanukah. Now, it was the Feast of Dedication, a time when the false priesthood would tumble, a time when one man would stand against the entire regime to bring about a revolution, and it's winter. Now, for what it's worth, winter today in Israel, the high is 18, the low is 9. Makes you feel terrible, doesn't it? I think Bruno's already like, I think I'll go there next week. And Jesus is walking in the temple in Solomon's porch. It's the same place where the original events of Hanukkah took place. And I love the fact that the way that John writes this is that the Jews surrounded him. Did you notice that in verse 24? Just like 198 years ago, Jesus is surrounded by a false priesthood. But I want you to recognize something. The temple was desecrated by a man who in essence had no resistance on his way up. The Bible makes clear that Jesus himself, the temple and tabernacle of the living God, John 1.14 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt, and the word therefore to a skinacho means to pinch its tent among us. However, you're probably aware if you're a Bible student that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and in chapter 6, you are called the temple of the living God. And my question is, when someone or someone or something around you tries to desecrate that temple, does it get any resistance? We've heard stories as of recent about individuals that are seeking to reach out to others and as a result of that, we're invited to a strip club for a birthday party. We're told they didn't go, so we're thankful for that. But that's an obvious desecration of the temple. People, And again, it'll always be, you don't need the word. Just make it up as you like. Just go with feeling and experience. That's going to be great. Well, let me just say, you've got to have something true and unbending to test the truth by. Jesus is surrounded. And they ask, how long will you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, why don't you just tell us? As if the problem was, of course, that Jesus wasn't making it clear. Now, why in the world are they trying to do this? Because they're going to bow down to him if he is? Of course not. Because they need a legitimate claim to try to put Jesus against the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, in Luke 23, 2, it tells us that they began to, to accuse Jesus before Pilate, and they say, we found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding taxes to Caesar, saying that he is the Christ King. So they're looking just for a reason, an opportunity to find something to accuse Jesus by. Jesus actually plays their game, if you will. For the moment, it says, like I told you, but you do not believe. The term believe, by the way, I believe happens seven times in this text. The term works happens eight, and the term father happens six. That tells you something. These are those primary terms, my father, the works, and believe. Jesus answered, he goes, I already told you, you don't believe. The issue is not that I haven't told you. The issue is you don't want to believe. So if you don't believe me, well, then the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Now stop, look at verse 25 closely with me for a moment. The term bear witness, maturejo, like the term martyr, is the term that essence means, presents as evidence. Why is that so important? 
Because notice what Jesus is saying about that. He says, the very things that I am doing right now testify that I am everything that I claim to be. My actions only back up my testimony. I'm everything that man is looking for, and they don't even know it. And I'm doing them in my Father's name. Now, why is that so important? Because get the idea that if, that if people were to watch Jesus do these things, Jesus is like, the things that I have done should be testimony enough. Clearly, I am who I say I am. What else would I need to do to prove to you that I'm everything that I say I am? Well, it's his works that testify that what's interesting is, is that when Jesus was just about to ascend, he turned to his disciples, and in Acts 1.8 he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit is, will come upon you, and you will be witnesses. To me, it's the same base word, matorejo. In this case, it's matoros. In other words, you will be the evidence. And please hear me in this, because this is what shuts down Christians so often, is that somewhere down the line, we think we're actually the lawyer. And if we think we're the lawyer, then we have to win the case, which means we have to out-argue the opposing side. We have to better present our case. We have to, and in other words, the responsibility is all in our hands. How do I, and you know, so we're going to do seminars on how to better argue your faith and how to make sure you can pull out that dusty book and you'll quote somebody that you've never met because he lived 300 years ago or 1,500 years ago or whatever. And so, but you're, the whole idea of it is, if that's the case, I can win this argument. So, hey, do you want Jesus? Well, let me tell you why. Because here's, we'll go with the teleological approach because it'd be stupid to say no, you can't risk it. Or we're going to go with, and we're going to throw all this stuff out. But in the end of it all, if you feel like the person says no, well, then you feel like you failed. You're like, well, then why even do it if I'm just going to fail? But you are not the lawyer. You are part of the evidence pool. And that's the beauty here is that all you need to be is who God calls you to be when he calls you to stand. Now, so let's just play this out for a second. Lois, we're going to play out Lois here. Okay, now Lois, you're Lois's brother, aren't you? Because you have the same face. Okay, and, and your name is Daniel. Well, boy, you're going to blend in here. Every other guy's named Daniel here. So, All right, okay, so <clears throat> Lois and Daniel. Let's just say Lois is being accused of killing Daniel. Okay, it's a brother-sister thing. So, it's, you know, there's a, we don't even have to play motive because you're brother-sister. Okay, so, and, and so with that in case, um, let's just say that Abraham has actually been called to actually help defend Lois. Now, we have certain ways that he could help defend Lois from the case of this murder charge. But the best thing he could do is what's called prima facie evidence. Prima facie evidence means it actually testifies by its existence. So, the best way he could defend Lois from this murder charge is simply to bring a living Daniel into the courtroom. Because if Daniel is living in the courtroom, well, then what's clear is she didn't kill him. Now, unless it was one of those weird resurrection situations, but let's just say for the most part, let's rule out the extremes. So in such a situation, it was, the case is closed. He has presented Daniel and in that evidence. No. Well, let's just say it was grievous bodily harm and murder. Well, then they're going to have to actually give a, take a closer look at Daniel. But if they don't find a bruise on Daniel, and then Daniel himself says, no, you know what? That's not the case. He's ex he is not only existing by prima facie, in other words, by his existence, but also now he's able to testify verbally. So what happens is now he's actually testifying in more than one way. Does that make sense? Now, the reason I say that is when Jesus actually calls us evidence or witnesses, 
we tend to think all of a sudden it's as if what happens is we've, Jesus is like, well, what I'm calling you to be is the new lawyer. But you're not the lawyer. You are evidence. And there are people out there in the courtroom of their own heart's decisions is still out in the open. It is not closed yet. And they're still making decisions on Jesus. But that is not your job to convince someone. What your job is is to be available when the Lord calls you to stand to do what he tells you. And there's the beauty in it. Because the pressure is off of you. Now, here's the thing. What people really don't want is another argument. What they really want is some real evidence. And if Jesus changes lives, well, then they should be able to see that in you. And if they see it in you, well, then chances are the first people you'll be testifying, even as prima facie evidence to, are the people you're closest to. Because they'll be the ones who will notice the obvious change. Wait a minute, you're not frying out like you used to. You're not flying off the handle like you used to. You're not going out and getting wasted like you used to. Or whatever the thing is or things are, they start to make people question. And then they start asking, what's different about you? Because you used to be horrible and now you're nice. You know, or there'll be those that'll be like, you used to be fun and now you're horrible. And at that moment, pray. Because the Lord just put you on stand. But here's the great part, is that if you've ever been a witness in any form of situation, you don't actually have to come up with this written speech. You just have to answer the questions that are before you. Have you noticed that? And I love the fact the Lord has a tendency to do that with you. People will ask you, do you really believe in that stuff? You know what? Let's just be honest. That's actually one of the simplest questions you'll ever get. But they genuinely want to know, are you serious about this? And you know, we want to actually do this like little dance thing. It's like British college students are like, oh, it's just, it's just, it's just, maybe just. well, we really don't say a sentence. We just kind of throw out a few and hopefully they'll walk away confused. How about if we just actually answer them truthfully? Yes, actually do. Do you really believe Jesus is the only way to God the Father? Yeah, actually I do. I do believe there is a very wide path, but it just doesn't lead to him. Well, isn't that closed-minded? Sure, everybody's closed-minded. That means is you've made a decision on something and you're, pretty, you're resting on that. Isn't that what that means? You're not open to other options? Well, if anyone else wants to volunteer, be completely selfless, be the son of God, die on the cross on my stead, uh, and then raise again from the dead, yeah, I would be willing to weigh out a second option. But Jesus himself said, Father, if there be any other way, and the Father didn't give another way. Kind of real sincere about the idea that that's the only way. Wow, that just sounds horrible. Are you kidding? We don't deserve it anyway. This is a gift, and how in the world could you be upset about that? But it is amazing how we get so caught up in that. Now, please hear me in our text. Jesus is like, look, it, it's more than just me talking about me. It's about the very things that I do testify. In Ephesians 2.10, it tells us we are his workmanship, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. You realize the very things that God does through us are part of the testimony. Now, I need to tell you a little bit of a story, and then we'll start mowing through this text. 1972. Some of you are like, oh, tell us another story, Grandpa. In 1972, my grandfather was a bus driver for the Chicago Transit Authority. Well, 
In other words, he drove a bus, a city bus, for Chicago. Now, you're probably aware of the fact that in Chicago, there's a lot of crime that's organized, traditionally by men with vowels at the end of their names. And uh, one of those particular men approached my grandfather and said, Hey, we want to look. Well, we want you to run money from, on your bus route from the beginning to the end. So in other words, they were going to put the money at the beginning of his, of his uh, route, and at the other end of it, they were going to retrieve it. And my grandfather, in very traditional, my family style, said, that's not going to happen. Well, they said, we'll make it happen. Shortly thereafter, my grandfather and my grandmother were walking home from an evening's event. I think he had taken her out to dinner. They lived on the first floor, in other words, up one flight of steps at this particular entrance. So they entered into a Chicago classic Chicago home. And as they, he thought he heard a noise, so he walked up the stairs to go and find out what it was. And it was two men who had promptly then flung him down the stairs. His brain splattered all over the shoes of my grandmother. She was never the same. But then the two men had to leave. And the two men stepped over my grandfather, stared my grandmother in the face and said, you didn't see nothing. And if you tell anyone what you saw, this is going to happen to you. She was the damning evidence for both of those men. Those men had been arrested. But my grandmother was too frightened to testify. As a result of that, those two men went free. We have no record of them ever being arrested. But my grandma can't remove the, their faces from her head, as you might imagine, permanently etched in her memory. See, what the criminals knew is that if they could get those who are proper evidence to be silent, injustice would run amok. And I think that's just clearly the MO of the enemy. And if he could get you frightened about testifying about Jesus Christ, the jury would be swayed, but to the expense of justice and to the expense of truth. Well, they surround Jesus and they say, well, tell us for truth. Are you or not? Because we just basically want to be able to take your quote and bring it before Caesar and so that we can get you nailed. And he says, look, I told you you don't believe. It's the very works that I do that testify anyway. So you're going to have to stare those things in the face every time I do something, which, by the way, still happens to this day when Christ works through us. In verse 26, he says, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep, as I said to you. Now, it's important to recognize, even though these, these men had Jesus right in front of them, even though he was doing miracles right in front of them, and even though those miracles were walking around testifying of it right in front of them, and they watched Jesus transform people, and yet they did not believe. And the reason I say that is, no matter what evidence you give, there are going to be some people who just will not believe. It's important to note, and I'm going to walk right through that, but please understand, it's what's called the present active indicative. Present means it's happening right now. And active means you make the choice. Indicative means it's a fact. In other words, when Jesus says, you do not believe, he's saying, you are choosing not to believe. This is not like unbelief is imposed upon you. You are choosing not to believe. Look at all this evidence in front of you. There was a blind man that was, there was a man that was born blind who was not a blind man anymore. 
There are people who were lepers who were walking on land that, that are clean. There are people who were, who were completely invalid that are now walking around praising. There were people who were silent that are speaking. There were people who could not hear who are hearing. And they go, all of these things are constantly bouncing around in front of you. And no matter what you want to say, that is evidence you are going to have to deal with. But you are choosing not to believe. So he says in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Now, remember that whole present active indicative thing? All of these are the same. In other words, my sheep hear my voice. Now, hear, akuho, like we get the word acoustic from it, they make a choice to listen. That's where this starts. How do I know that I'm a sheep of Christ? It's so much more than, well, I prayed some prayer once and then I decided to live for me. The first thing he says is, I know my sheep because the first thing is they choose to listen. Now, there's a difference between overhear and listen. I'm good at overhearing. My wife is great at listening. We're in a public place and she could hear a conversation in the room and it'll affect her. She'll be like, I can't believe that that mother said that to that child. And I didn't even, I wasn't even aware there was a mother and a child in the room. I'm somewhere, all the noise in my head is traditionally noise I make myself. All the noise she gets in her head comes from the outside in. She is hearing. She is listening. And I'm overhearing. And you know that. If you've ever had a teen, you've been a teen, you look and you sound, you know, someone starts talking to you and all of a sudden starts going, right? And you know what they're telling you is like, I really need you to do this thing. And here are the four details. And they're like, thing, going for it. Wait, I didn't even give you the four details. You know, and you realize you're overhearing, but you're not listening. And Jesus says, look, you need to recognize my sheep are listening. They're not just listening for something to accuse. They're not just overhearing. They are listening with their heart. And he goes, as a result of that, I know them. Present active indicative. I choose to know them. And I know them in this Gnosko experiential, I choose to have a relationship with them so that we could have a, so that we could have this experiences together. And they follow me. Present, active, indicative. Again, they choose to follow me. Interesting, the word there is the word akalutho. And akalutho comes from the same word aku. In other words, you cannot follow without listening because it's in the word. They listen and as a result of listening, they follow. And if they're going to follow me, they're going to leave other things. And as a result, I give them, present, active, indicative, I choose to give them eternal life. They listen, I know them. They follow, I give them eternal life. Now, listen to the promise he puts at the end of that. Not only shall they never perish, but nobody is going to be able to snatch them out of my hand. I'd like you to consider the fact that the very hand that Isaiah 40 tells us marked the universe, holds you. And unless you have the real God, you're going to be busy to figure out how hard you're holding on to him. But when you have the real God, it's all about how hard he's holding on to you. The word for snatch is the word kapazo, the word like we get rapture from it. And it's a violent grabbing. He goes, nobody is going to be able to get into that hand and get you. If you really follow him, if you're following, if you choose to listen and you choose to follow, nobody's going to get at you. Because that hand holds you. And you are in there. That hand that marked the universe, the hand that holds the seas in the hollow of it, holds you. And there's no way. Oh, the devil's been working at me. He can yell all he wants, but he can't get in. 
John tells us that in 1 John. It says that whoever has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. Look at that. You just need to recognize that's what the Bible says. But it's not just that I'm being held in Jesus' hand. By the way, it's 1 John 5.18, so you can check it on your own. It says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Here I am held into the hand of Jesus, and then I'm held in the hand of the Father. Exactly, who do you think is going to get through that? Do you really think somewhere the devil juke left and Jesus went, oh, and then he went right? And Jesus was like, how did he get past me? Do you really think is that the kind of way? I mean, how much benefit, I mean, how much credit are you giving the enemy and how little are you giving to Jesus and something like that? Oh, the devil got past Jesus again and now he's been working on me. Hey, you can yell all he wants. But I belong to Jesus and I'm in his hand. And I'll be honest, there have been times in my life I did not have the strength to hold on, but he held me. There were moments where it didn't make sense and I didn't even know what to grab a hold of, but I knew who was holding me. And I'm so thankful for that because if it was all about my grabbing a hold of, we'd all be in trouble right now. You too. Well, I and my father are one. I got Kapitea and Esmond. Universally one. The Jews took up stones. Well, where did they find those stones? Remember back in chapter 8 when they brought them to stone the girl? Now they pick them up to throw them at Jesus. So Jesus says, hey, of all these works that I've done, all these things I've done, which of these are you stoning me for? Let's just make it clear. And so, of course, they say, well, we're not stoning you because you healed a guy. We stone you because you're calling yourself God. Now, this is our final point in all of this, but you need to hear it clearly, so please don't lose me in these last few verses. Because if you don't get this right, you could be sucker to the whole Mormon concept because they use this. Now, you're probably aware of the fact there was this teen, and I don't have to develop it much, but he'd been kicked out, you know, he'd been arrested twice for stone-telling. That's where you put rocks in a hat and you fortune-tell. Uh, by the way, strange, because that's part of his testimony of how he could decode these magic plates. Anyways, with all of that said, uh, you know, he basically claimed that he was told by a, uh, an angel named Moroni that uh, he was going to go populate a planet and become a god himself, and he used, and it was like this kind of text, even though he was illiterate, so he couldn't have read it, you know, was like, well, you know, doesn't it say you're gods? Interesting, it doesn't say you become them. So what in the world is he saying? Well, first of all, in regards to that, people say, well, are you a son of God? Well, then you must be God, right? Because you're a son. Well, have you ever heard of adoption? Because there's a specific term, monogenes, the term that's used for begotten, or we read only begotten. Genes, like gene, Mono meaning one. Jesus to be the only begotten does not mean the only created. Monogenes means he's the only one from the Father's gene pool. That's what it means. The only begotten means, quite simply, he's the only one of the Father's species. Now, we have two daughters. One is adopted. One is not adopted. They're both our daughters. One clearly looks a lot more like us than the other. I would be, hesitate to say uh, both of them behave like us in some manner. But uh, in all of that, we could definitely say one of them carries our gene pool, but both of them are our children and we love them just as much. Now the reason I say that is, is that just because someone's adopted doesn't make them any less a child. But it doesn't make, I mean, Ruthie will never have our genes which, I don't know, I think she's probably very thankful about, to be honest. So Jesus then quotes from the very text that Judas Maccabeus 
quoted from when they tried to make him Messiah. He quotes from Psalm 82. He says, doesn't it say in the law, your God's not even so, okay, wait a minute, what in the world is he saying here? So follow me on this quick rabbit trail and we'll, we'll close this up for the day. But hear me in this. And we'll read through the psalm because it's actually only eight verses. When God had actually spoken to Moses and he set up the law system, and he set up with that law system a social judicial system and in essence a criminal judicial system. And ultimately, uh, he would then take the advice ultimately of his father-in-law, a guy named Jethro. I always think it's a fun name. But you know, it's not, not all of his names are that weird. The other one's Hobab. That's, anyways, unless you're named Hobab, it's an unusual name for me. And he says, look, the problem is you're killing yourself by handling everyone's court cases. Why don't you put on an appellate court? Let there be people that actually can handle the small cases, kind of like a people's court thing. And then if they get past that and they can't be solved, well, then you go in it. What the Father God said to Moses was, was that ultimately when you stand in judgment, you are standing in judgment in my place. He says, your judgment will be as if God himself is speaking and passing judgment. So the idea of that is, Moses, you want to be really careful about the decisions you make and you want to seek me on those decisions. Because the one thing that he is going to be making decisions on that is in the realm of Godhood in this is the area of living and dying. Because he passes capital judgment calls. A person that's caught in adultery, stoned to death, for instance, as we saw in John 8. Moses has to stand in judgment. And God says, look it, I'm giving you, and hear me on this, I'm giving you that equilibrium. Because God always gives us responsibility equilibriated with authority. That's the point. You do not have authority without responsibility. And you do not have responsibility without authority. If you're responsible without authority, you'll get exhausted and die. If you have authority without responsibility, you'll be a tyrant and a big fat jerk. So God doesn't want you to be either. So as a result of that, he goes, look at you have this huge responsibility because you know I'm going to hold you accountable for the death of innocent blood. So I'm giving you a tremendous responsibility, but I'm going to give you authority with it. You are representing me to those people. That's the point of it. So ultimately, the judicial system that was birthed from that, and I remind you, Moses as well was from the tribe of Levi, like Judas Maccabeus and Matthew Maccabeus was that the people who would follow then would basically say, we are standing in God's stead. Jesus would even say, those leaders sit at Moses' seat, so you better do what they say. Just don't behave like they behave. So when they started abusing that right, you can imagine God's going to come calling for them. And he comes calling for him because he's like, I gave you this responsibility, but I also gave you the authority to represent me. You cannot take that authority without the, rep- without the, uh, without the responsibility. Or what's going to happen is you're going to become a big fat jerk. And I'm going to have problems with you in that. So listen to what he says in Psalm 82. God stands in the congregation of the mighty and he judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Think about that. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They don't know. They don't understand. They walk around in darkness. All the earth, the foundations of the earth are unstable. Because I said, you are gods. Elohim. There's our term. And all of you are children of the Most High. That's the part that, that Judas was quoting. Because, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. 
Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. What God said is, I gave you the responsibility to represent me. And you took that thing and you said, look at me, I am the new God in town kind of thing. And God goes, but you are going to die just like any other human being. Because you took that responsibility and you misused it. But the problem was the people that Jesus was speaking to, those religious leaders, had no problem quoting that they were representing God and taking that authority, but they didn't take any of the responsibility that came with it. So in other words, Jesus goes, wow, funny, you guys don't seem to have a problem with this. If you guys don't have a problem with calling this, how in the world could you actually have a problem with me? Let's just judge your actions over my actions and you make that decision. Hey, look, if I don't do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you ultimately may no one believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So as a result of this, and again, you can imagine, Jesus just shut them down. Remember, they came this whole thing trying to actually get Jesus to say that he was the Christ so they can nail him. And Jesus goes, funny, you're actually calling yourselves gods incarnate now in this. Uh, which one of us is going to have a problem with Caesar? So what do they do? They actually try to grab a hold of him as a result of this. But Jesus escaped out of their hand. Now, it does not say that Jesus waved his hand and everyone went, do, 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 and they all just could Whoa, what happened? Where did he go? Jesus, how in the world did Jesus escape them? We don't read. But, might I suggest this? We don't read that he had any stately form or majesty that would be attracted to him. That's actually what Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 53, which means he wasn't super buff. He did not look like a surfer. He did not have the coolest tan. He certainly didn't look like somebody that you would expect to step out on Baywatch. He, my guess is what he probably looked like, I know this is going to sound weird, is he looked Jewish because he was Jewish. And that we imagine with all the men with their head coverings, and I'm not saying they all look the same, but you put a big beard on a lot of guys and you cover most of the rest of them with a head covering, Jesus is going to be able to slip in and out of a whole lot of other people. Unless he's a foot and a half taller than everyone else, he levitates, he's got a gold plate on his head, and the angels sing when he speaks. In which case, then, Jesus would have a lot more trouble escaping out of their hands. But if that were the case, then Judas would not have to identify him when he actually had to lead the leaders to go and arrest Jesus. He could just look for the glowing floating guy with the gold plate on his head. You can find him, no problem. But if he actually looked like everyone else, then probably they're like, hmm, which one is he again? And I actually love that. Do you realize there's only one person in the whole world that actually could choose his body and his appearance and he chose ugly? Do you realize that? Would you? I'll be honest, I wouldn't. I'm way too vain for that. I'd be like, hmm, let me see, where do we start? Let's start with the pecs, and I would just start itemizing it all the way down. Now, let me say why, and we'll close up our last few verses. Because beautiful people are intimidating. That's not why I would choose to be. Notice I say I would choose, as if I had to put myself in that category. But you know that. There are some people that they're just so handsome or pretty or whatever that people just, they like drool not just because of out of lust, they just jewel because they're intimidated by them. But ugly people, nobody has a problem going up to ugly people. And I'm not trying to be mean. Jesus made himself approachable. He's not going to come to earth so that he could be with mankind and then make himself unapproachable. Came from a family that was a weird reputation because mom got pregnant without a man. That's a weird reputation. Doesn't come from a very privileged place on the planet. As a matter of fact, Nazareth was this tiny little place, maybe 120 people. 
It wasn't a huge place, and he didn't come from the heart of his city. Just keep that in mind. So get the idea here. Jesus made himself approachable in every way. There was nothing about Jesus that even his enemies didn't have a problem approaching him. And the reason I say that is that Jesus looked at a bunch of people and he said, hey, you don't have a problem with all that authority. And you aren't even doing anything like I am. So let me ask you a question as we go to prayer and look at these last few verses. What is it you really want from God? Is he a means to the end? Is he the end? Because the means to the end, then if you get what you're looking for, then you'll bail on him, and then the worst thing you could ever do is give it to you. Let's be honest. But if he is the end, well, then he's worth all of your searching. But if all you want is some authority or some power or something like that, then he gave it to you, then why in the world? Then you're using him. So Jesus leaves there. He escaped there. And what does he do? Is he goes beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, where it all started. When the last of the great Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, stood and told people they need to let go of their old life, change their mind, and follow Jesus. And people come. Interesting. Many came to him, which tells us that it wasn't like Jesus couldn't be found. It wasn't like Jesus was hiding out from the religious leaders. My question is, why weren't the religious leaders chasing him down there? I mean, everyone else seemed to find him. But I suggest to you that because the religious leaders had already been to this spot, but they had a problem with John the Baptist. If you remember when John the Baptist told them to repent, and they had no interest in repenting. As a matter of fact, Luke tells us this way, that these particular scribes and Pharisees rejected the will of God for themselves, refusing to be baptized by John. And yet, notice, they say John, by the way, he didn't perform a sign, and yet everything he said was true. Do you know what that tells me? All the miracles in the world doesn't change someone's mind if they don't want it to be changed. And yet one person telling the truth could change a mind if they're really open to the truth. Beloved, you are evidence. You are the temple of the living God and you are evidence. And you represent the truth for which all of the universe hangs. And there are people out there that want that truth and there are people out there that pretend they want that truth but they don't. And there are people out there that just don't want that truth and they're going to make it clear. And the bottom line in all of that is, is that supposed to change your mind? Be faithful as evidence. Be true as evidence. And as you are, there will be people, and, you go, and people will say, well, yeah, well, what about that guy? Look at all the authority, and look at the TV that he has, and the show, and the cars, and the whatever. And I'm like, well, that's funny, because Jesus seemed to have a real problem with him here in this verse. Because you may set yourself up as if you're God's rep on earth, but you're going to die like a man. And not like die like a real man. You just die like a human. But wouldn't it be great if we spent the rest of our life not freaking about winning every argument because you don't have to run the universe. I'm very thankful you're not running the universe. You should be very thankful I'm not. So I don't have all the answers. Is the universe expanding? How in the world would I know? Do you think I actually see the entire universe? And who's measuring that anyways? Well, it seems like it's expanding. Well, I can tell you who holds the whole universe in his hands. And by the way, that, that big hand holds me. 
And no one's going to be able to pull me out of there. What's amazing is don't overlook the witness you are to try to answer questions that are completely irrelevant to the point. Because in the end of it all, there are going to be those that are be like, you know what? I never saw, you know, maybe I saw a miracle from Dan. Maybe I didn't, but I can see that Dan is a miracle. Because I can see that Dan's a miracle. He's evidence. Man, and I look and I think, man, what God's done in Hugo or in Deborah's life, for instance, or Bruno's life, I just look around and I think, what a difference. Be available. I guarantee you, you're going to get called to the stand. So, if you're available, then just be willing to be used and watch what he does. At the end of it all, there are going to be those that are going to walk away and still not be believing. That's clear. And there are going to be those who are going to walk away and go, I believe. Don't you want to be a part of that? Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text in this warm room on this snowy day, two days before Hanukkah in 2017, looking back at something where you walked at the same time of year, surrounded by a false priesthood that were busy trying to nail you on some form of statement so that they can try to pin you against the Roman Empire. But boy, it just seems so stupid to try to get in an argument with you thinking somehow we're going to win. And I can understand why the enemy tries to make, it, make us think that it's us who have to win the argument because we'll lose all kinds of arguments. You just don't. So Lord, take the pressure off of us and give us the joy of knowing that we are going to be used by you. And Lord, we recognize that there are those who are passing very heavy judgments. And I just want to pray for our judicial system here and in the States. Because some of it just seems so crazy how a a drunken girl can attack a boyfriend and that she met on Tinder and stab him and all kinds of things and the judge be like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Or someone that could hold a 19-year-old special needs kid hostage and film the whole thing live on Facebook and then be given probation. I, I don't get it. Obviously, I don't have all the details. But I do recognize that there are people who are going to stand before you because of the judgments they have to make. And some of them are matters of life and death. And I just pray, God, that you would get a hold of them. Show them the the depth and the gravity of the choices they make and how you were there to help. And in this room, Lord, we just confess to you, we want all your goodies We want all your blessings and we want all the good stuff you have to offer and yet we often would rather shirk the responsibilities that come with it to use these things so that others could come to know you. And we recognize in the end of it all we are simply evidence. But evidence that's unwilling to testify is no real evidence at all. 
You tell us that your sheep choose to listen to you and they choose to follow you. And in doing so, you choose to know them and give them eternal life. Then you wrap your hand around them and no one's able to snatch them out. And it isn't just like snatch them from your hand, but snatch them out of your hand, which means your whole hand encircles us. Not just holds on to us, but covers us. We just can't be any safer than that. And I just want to pray, God, that we recognize that the the greatest act you ever did, Jesus, dying on the cross for our sins, buried all like Scripture promised, and on the third day rising again, and then seen by all those people, this testimony you are, everything you say you are, And as you lay to rest our old selves and rise up a better person, someone under your lordship where you are the architect of our reinvention, God, I pray that we would be quick to testify when you call us to. Because we really do want to see people saved. And I thank you. So, Lord, may we be the first people to say Happy Hanukkah. But Lord, it's about a dedicating of a temple and you tell us we're your temple now. So Lord, may they be cleansed. Remove from the inside of us, Lord, all things that profane and replace them with a place you could call home. We commit ourselves to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.